Hey everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Is China the biggest market risk? Hi, everyone. Welcome to this extended Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Jeff Snyder, host of the Eurodollar University. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Great, Maggie. How are you? I'm doing well. It's great to have you back on. Uh, we were just joking right before we came on air that it's been really busy, and it certainly seems like that, especially the last couple of weeks. I mean, the August lull is a myth. We know that, but we've seen a lot of movement. It feels like a lot of anxiety building beneath the surface. So um, we, we look like, I mean, the stocks have been bouncing around today. They were mixed, they were lower, and um, they still look like they're going to, again, end at the lows of the day, a little selling into the close. But it's really been the bond market where you've seen that worry show up, the 10-year yield um, now at 424. I'm not sure exactly where it closed, but it's going to be pretty close to that, 427. Um, What's going on? Why have we seen such a big move in, in the treasury market? Well, both treasuries and stocks are reacting to potentially more hawkish Federal Reserve policy, right? Because in the stock market in particular, ever since we went through the banking crisis in March and April, the narrative has been Jay Powell's done. The FOMC, they've gotten as far as they can go. Now the economy is going to fall off, maybe a mild recession. So there's no way the Fed can hike any more rates. And then it got into that Goldilocks position where we thought, okay, the Fed's done, but there might actually not be a recession at all. And stocks rallied on that. Bonds were sort of agnostic about it. And now we're in that we're in a position where, okay, maybe the economy appears to be too strong. Not only are we going to avoid a recession, at least that's the narrative, that's going to force the Fed to get back into the rate hikes. And if you think rate hikes are the reason why stocks were lower, if you think rate hikes are going to impact bonds, then you're going to sell both of those instruments. So we're kind of, we've kind of gone through the entire circle here, the entire circuit here. We went from no more rate hikes is good. We're not going to have a recession to, oh, maybe we're going to, we're not going to have a recession such that we now are going to have more rate hikes again. And it's impacting sentiment. And then you throw on top of it, there's so much uncertainty about what's going on with consumer prices, what's going on overseas. It's really a confusing period. In fact, maybe it's one of the more confusing periods we've had over the last couple of years. And the last couple of years have been known for being particularly ambiguous and confusing. <laughs> so so we're, we're all in a pickle. And, and by the way, we've heard that almost across the board from everyone that's been coming on our platform, platform. And these are people who've been in the business for decades, who've traded all sorts of crises in the past. A lot of people saying this is one of the most challenging macro environments they've been in. So let's sort of break that down into some bite-sized pieces. First of all, on the inflation front. So yeah, you're right. It's like no landing. Uh-oh, wait, actually the U.S. consumer is so resilient. This is going to mean higher for longer, maybe hikes, maybe run a, a return of inflation. Is that a narrative that you think is going to happen? Is that how you see it playing out? Well, that's how I think most people see it playing out. And that's certainly what the Federal Reserve is worried about, because for them, consumer prices are all about two things. That's expectations and the Phillips curve. 
neither of which have anything to do with inflation, but at least that's what the Federal Reserve actually believes. And so for them, it makes sense that they would be sending more hawkish signals because they have been expecting a real material slowdown, especially after March and April, credit crunch developing and all that. And you look at recent statistics, I mean, there's kind of soft, you know, the payroll reports weren't great, but it's hardly the stuff that you would consider as hardcore recession or even close to recession. The unemployment rate's lower again. So as far as the Fed is concerned, the Phillips curve is still in play. And the longer that it goes, then they believe that gets into expectations. So for the Fed, they're thinking, yeah, we need to hike rates. But as far as what's really going on with consumer prices, there's any number of forward-looking indications which suggest there's no risk at all of that happening. Uh, you look at producer prices around the world, which not only are solidly deflationary, not just in the US, but more so overseas, there is a very good and close relationship between, say, a PPI and a CPI. Maybe there's a little bit of a lag there, but the deeper into deflation producer prices go, the more we know that consumer prices are going there. And furthermore, we know why producer prices are becoming deflationary. It's because the economy, even though maybe it's not showing the signs that the Federal Reserve would like to see, it is actually weakening under the surface. So the Fed looks at the Phillips curve, the unemployment rate, and worries about expectations. And so there's a lot of people who think, you know, inflation is going is in danger of being reignited by a tight labor market and expectations when there's a lot of, all, a lot of other data which goes in the complete opposite direction, including producer prices, which are telling us that uh, things are really getting serious underneath. So if there is a lead from producer prices to going up in the data yet, what some folks are looking at, they'll say, okay, well, all the good news from that energy deflation, the, the drop in energy prices is already made its way through. And now you're kind of moving into the winter for all, you haven't seen prices go down. They've kind of bottomed. So we're going to see a potentially a resurgence in energy. We still have a war in Ukraine. A lot of the things that drove energy up in the first place are still in place. We've drained the SPR, you know, you know, all the arguments. So if anything, you're going to have in uh, energy start to feed back into inflation, and you're you're going to have a problem. You don't see that as a concern. Well, that was I think you know that's an old narrative. That was the idea that in the early stages of disinflation, at the end of last year, moving into this year, it was entirely energy, which was kind of funny to begin with because that's all we heard in 2022 was that oil prices and energy were inflation. <laughs> then it becomes oil prices are disinflationary. We're just going to ignore that. We're not going to pay attention, but. Over the last several months in particular, really start really since May, what we've seen in producer prices and to a certain extent, a substantial extent in consumer prices, is that it's not just energy prices. I'll give you a couple examples. Yeah. The European PPI, which has been down pretty substantially uh, over recent months, the core PPI has been down even more in the last couple of months by the most since 2009. In the US, the last US CPI report for the month of July, what we saw was the core rate, the core CPI rate for the second straight month was disinflationary. It was modestly positive. I think it was 0.16% month over month for two months in a row. And the reason was because when you strip out um, energy, food, and shelter prices, the rest of the CPI was actually fractionally negative for the second straight month. So it isn't just energy prices. And though energy prices are rebounding, especially gasoline, which we all know, and that's going to feed through part of the CPI bucket, part of consumer prices. There are the rest of consumer prices that are becoming more and more disinflationary, if not deflationary outright. Services is another one. 
uh, the last uh, last CPI, services less rent. They've been disinflationary basically all year. So I don't think it's just energy and, and uh, gasoline that we need to worry about. It's the rest of the CPI bucket that's going in the opposite direction from uh, oil and energy and gasoline. So if that's the case, is the economy as strong as we think it is? If we're seeing these deflationary forces, what are they keying off of? Yeah, I think that it's the opposite. I think the economy is in much worse shape than we're than we're seeing in the mainstream economic numbers. Uh, GDP is a good example. GDP was you know much better than expected in the second quarter in real terms, but you look at it in nominal terms, what you see is it's been slowing way down. It just hasn't filtered into the rest of the statistics yet. Uh, the labor market seems mm -hmm. to be incredibly resilient. The unemployment rate still at a, a really low number. The payroll reports are still hanging in there. But we've we've heard anecdotes, we've seen data that this cycle more than any other cycle, and this happens every cycle, businesses are hoarding labor. They're not resorting to layoffs and, and firing people because of the last the experience of the last several years. They don't want to let go of people, which in a lot so they're experiencing problems in their own businesses, but it's not translating into the main recession indicators that most people associate with a recession, the Federal mm -hmm. Reserve included. It's not showing up in the unemployment rate because businesses are cutting hours, they're shifting people from full-time to part-time, but they're not engaging in the mass layoffs like they probably would have if we were in a more typical cycle, which goes back to what you said from the beginning here. One of the reasons why it's the most uncertain macroeconomic climate in quite some time is there are all these unique factors that are combining to make it make it really difficult to, to have to really put your finger out and say, this is exactly what's happening. And here's all the data spread out that's that points to only one conclusion. It's really ambiguous because you have all of these unusual processes that are taking place. But when you step back and look at it from a high level, despite the unemployment rate, despite the labor market numbers, you look at producer prices, you look at market positions and things like that, even though even though uh, the yield curve interest rates are backed up a little bit, you have to ask, why aren't they backing up a whole lot more if we were in danger of an actual, re an actual restart to the inflation process? So there's there's enough indications out there to suggest that, yeah, the, the soft landing, that's nowhere near a foregone conclusion. And you're undercutting or, or you're, you're not quite, uh, you're not really appreciating the risks that are, that are becoming, in my view, more and more visible all the time. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices, or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again, March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holds barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. That's so interesting because it's really contrary because we actually went from soft landing, which was pretty market friendly to like no landing. That's what that's where this uh, coinciding with this kind of rethink of rates. In fact, we had former U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers speaking in the media somewhere in an interview saying he thought 10-year yields could average 4.75% for a while, this higher for longer 
Fed isn't done, uh, you know, that's the real risk. Well, the markets are thinking the opposite because <laughs> you look at forward rate markets and they're still pointing for lower rates ahead. Whether it's the near-term forward spread, SOFR futures, or in Europe, Euriber futures, the European bond curves, just the, just the inverted yield curve. We're still looking at lower rates. We just don't know when. And so there's a, there's a form of recency bias that creeps in here because you think, okay, we've been talking about recession for how long now? And it hasn't happened. So it, it, it can't possibly happen. If it, if it was going to happen, it would have happened by now. And because it didn't happen by now, it's not going to happen. And that's, that's, a, that's a form of bias. That's not actually looking at the situation because the markets, they continue to point to lower interest rates ahead. We just don't know at what point that's going to show up or what at what point the economic data or the economy itself is going to be unambiguous, where it's, it's at the point where we all say this is a recession. And by the way, that's not atypical. Most recessions aren't night and day. It's not like you go from expansion to contraction all at once. You go through a prolonged period where the economy looks like it's going to slow down. You're not really sure where it's going to stop. And then maybe it gets into recession. Maybe it doesn't. Then all of a sudden, everybody agrees, okay, this is the recession. Think of 2008, for example. There was still arguments about whether we would have a recession weeks before Lehman Brothers happened. In the summer of 2008, there was a robust debate about what was going on in the economy when we were already eight months into what was the worst recession up until, you know, up until recently. Um, so it's... This is typical stuff in these types of periods. And I think, as we said before, it's even more difficult this time because we have a, we have more unusual factors to consider than normal. It's, it's really, it's understandable why people would be almost polar extremes. You have people like Larry Summers and the Federal Reserve saying, we need to be, we need to be really concerned about inflation here when all the markets are looking at lower interest rates over next year, the years ahead. Uh, persistently low interest rates we have, which are nothing like inflation and nothing like a normal healthy environment or a soft landing, more of a more of a messy transition between where we are today and where that long run future would look like. Yeah. So um, Trillina is asking, what do you make the ongoing bear steepening? And do you think the 10 year yield can reach 5% in the fall? So is the market mispricing the U.S. economy right now? I think what we're seeing in the treasury market in particular is nothing more than just the usual fluctuations. It's, you know, it's been moving back and forth in a very, really a narrow range. We're only basically where we were in last fall in September and October, despite the fact the Fed has engaged in three quarters of a trillion dollars in quantitative tightening from its balance sheet just in U.S. treasuries. There's been how many rate hikes between now and then? The mm -hmm. uh, Fitch downgrade, the treasury is deluging us daily with more paper, um, record shorts positions from speculators and treasury futures. Despite all of that, why is the 10-year only 427 or 428? That's really the question we should be asking. And it's not just the U.S. Treasury market. Look around the rest of the world. Rates are low. They are defying central bank policies. And you have to ask yourself why that is. Is it because we're going into a soft landing? Is it because rates are going to be structurally higher? And the argument usually is, well, the market's just wrong. And the market is starting to realize it's wrong and repricing being wrong. But when has that ever happened? I mean, the market's certainly not perfect. Curves are never perfect. Nothing ever is. But in every cycle we've been through, the market has a far, far superior record than uh, certainly central banks and mainstream econometric models. So again, you ask yourself, yes, rates are backing up from where they were before, but they really haven't moved all that much. 
The short-term end of the curve is at 550, and yet the 10-year treasury is more than a full point below that. Why? What is the market actually telling us? So you don't buy this, you know, there are some people who are like, forget the yield, you know, that the following the inverted yield curves doesn't give the signals that it used to in the past. Those indicators are broken. You don't buy that. No, we hear that every time. <laughs> it's, you can go back in history and push out and fish out news articles, economist speeches, Federal Reserve discussions where every single time the curve inverts, they say this time is different. And this time is never different. It's always the same. And it's funny, you mentioned before. We've been through this back and forth just this year. Remember, we started out, we re-ended last year. We even go back further than that. When the yield curve first inverted in early 2022, it was March and April, the big oil price spike, the curve inverted, and what everybody say? Nah, this time is different. It means nothing. The economy's just fine. Then we had a whole bunch of really bad stuff happen last September and October. Curves really got inverted, and everybody said, uh-oh, here's a recession. Okay, this time we're going to have a recession. And then in January and February, what happened? Everybody went back to the other side of the aisle and said, nope, soft landing. We're going into a soft landing. And then all of a sudden, somewhat out of nowhere, for according, from most people's perspective, we had a banking crisis and everybody flipped to the other side. Oh, yes, there's going to be a recession. The Federal Reserve's models did the same thing. And now what? After First Republic failed and we didn't see the kind of immediate consequences that everybody pictures from a banking crisis, everybody has moved to the opposite direction again. Now we're all back in the inflation soft landing bucket. And so through this back and forth, back and forth, the market curves have been right down the middle this entire time. And again, you have to ask yourself why, despite all of the ambiguity it looks like in the macroeconomic data, markets remain absolutely resolute that you know, from a very technical overview perspective, rates are going to go down, not up. And that's not consistent with a soft landing. That's consistent with all the other problems that we've been talking about. Yeah, you're so right in that description. And it makes me think of everyone running on one side to the boat and it gets really lopsided and then running to the other. And we've seen some of those moves quickly too. So it's given this sense of real volatility, but super important to kind of pull that lens back. So you mentioned supply. What about all the supply coming? Because that 30-year auction that didn't go well seemed to spark a lot of or contribute to this move higher in yields. And some people worried about the fact that there are no buyers for treasuries at the long end. This is going to be a problem. Um, and that despite what the Fed does, maybe this is going to put upward pressure on rates to try to attract global capital. What do you make of the supply situation? Yeah, I've lost count of how many years we keep hearing there's too many treasuries. I mean, it's 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 every time. I mean, it's been really since 2009, even before then, but 2009 with the ARA, everybody says there's too many treasuries. And by the way, just to be clear, I agree with them. The federal government needs to be, uh, needs somebody needs to institute some kind of control. And I would love it if we would have a return of the bond vigilantes. We need some vigilantes. But the problem is there's enormous insatiable appetite for safe and liquid instruments, which sadly, that's what government bonds provide. I wish there wasn't that kind of link, but the reality is the safe and liquid instruments are government bonds. And because safety and liquidity are prioritized, there's going to be demand for what the government offers. So bond vigilantism is dead and it was killed by these deflationary circumstances. Uh, that's regrettable, but the, the reality is that's why despite what Uncle Sam does, despite how much they borrow, Rates never skyrocket, they never surge, no matter how many times we hear they're going to, and they're not going to because supply isn't the overriding concern in the marketplace. The credit profile of the government, sadly, is not the overriding concern. It's safety and liquidity. 
And that answers the question I asked before. Why is why are interest rates hanging in where they are? Because people are thinking ahead and saying that safety and liquidity are going to be in high demand at some point in the near-term future. We don't know exactly when that is because mm -hmm. you don't put a clock on these things. But at some point in the near-term future, safety and liquidity are going to be in demand. So Janet can sell her trillion dollars in the third quarter, and it's not going to be that disruptive. And it's funny how that narrative got set by that 30-year auction that you just referenced, Maggie, because yeah. the day before it, the 10-year auction was pristine and stellar, but nobody said anything <laughs> and about that. And the three-year before Suddenly that. Suddenly the 30-year, oh, the 30-year means there's no demand. It's, you know, these quirks, it just, you know, it, it's, again, it, it kind of, it fits with the situation. Yeah, and also the narrative that some people have, which you you just referenced, which is, yes, there's too much, yes, there's too much spending. Yes, there are, you know, there needs to be um, some sort of relationship and conversation about debt, but it, you know, that, so there are a lot of people who are looking for that ahead of time. And they should, there's, you know, there's no reason the government should be borrowing to the, what are we at, 32 trillion and count. I mean, that's just absolutely mind boggling awful. But Jap Japan has shown the example. As long as your, your economy gets stuck in a non-growth rut, the government can do whatever it wants to do. It's, it's, it le it leads to this long-run, self-reinforcing, destructive spiral that really takes some kind of effort to get out of. And that's the, you know, again, the problem isn't necessarily that bonds, bond yields are low. It's what they're telling us about all of these other things that it perversely allows the government to get away with what it's getting away with. And so I understand why people. They emotionally, you know, they really want something to, to really put a stop to this ridiculousness, the insanity of, of fiscal deficits. But you're not going to find it in this economic climate from the, from this set of circumstances. As long as safety and liquidity are in demand, that's it. I mean, that's the priority. That's a today problem, not a tomorrow problem. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. So the million-dollar question is, why is there still, still such demand and a premium on safety and liquidity? Do you see any strains in the financial system that would cause the type of event where people would be scrambling for that kind of safety? Yeah, normally we talk about collateral here and collateral yeah, scarcity, always, but that's, yeah. that's one of the byproducts of what Janet Yellen's doing. She's deluging the system with treasury bills, which is actually having a positive impact. Um, because, you know, if we're always short treasury bills, which we usually are, a huge, huge, uh, it, you know, a flood of treasury bill issuance actually helps with supply. So we're not really looking at collateral right now the way we were just a couple months before, certainly uh, in, the, in the banking crisis of March and April. But there are trouble spots around the world where you look and say, ooh, yeah, I know what's going on in treasuries. I mean, China is a perfect example. It's probably the most prom prominent example. You look at what's going on with the Chinese and you think, okay, yeah, the, this, the safety and liquidity makes a lot of sense here. Even if it's not in the U.S. unemployment rate, it's all over not just the world's second largest economy. It's the world's second largest economy having this degree of problem, and it's already having a spillover impact at least around Asia and, and, and China's neighbors. And it's not hard to see how that can become a global, global big issue not too, uh, not too longer after that. Wow, that's... That's, so you sent over a bunch of China charts, and we're going to jump into that as well as questions um, as we pass the half hour, because I want to remind everybody that um, this is an extended, and the second half you have to be a member for. Before we do, so just let's put, hit pause on that conversation, because you just made a very big statement there. But 
Just want to finish up on the U.S. side of things with stocks, because we didn't mention what happens in this scenario to the stock market, because people will say, oh, you know, we're sitting at some, some of these stocks are sitting at new highs. And we see the freight train that's been uh, mega cap tech and AI, and you have stocks that have rallied you know, all the way through, and it's been a little turbulent lately. If if there's trouble ahead and we don't see rates going up, what does that mean for bonds? Or if there is a recession coming, what does it look like? And what's the translation into equities? Well, it's, you know, for the bond market, we see is the bull steepening case, which I hate that term because it's not bullish for anybody but those who own treasuries. It's actually bearish for the entire world. So you have short-term rates that go down much faster than long end of the yield curve. Because so the yield curve, the short, long, long end rates are already down significantly. So you get into the bull steepener case, which is the, the entire yield curve goes down, but the front end goes down much faster than the longer end, which if that's the scenario that comes to pass, it's not going to be good for stocks because stocks, really the only environment where the stock market doesn't do all that well is in a recessionary environment. And if that's what the bond market is pricing, that's what we end up with. And that gets confirmed by the bull steepening in the uh, treasury curve, then you're not going to see stocks do, do that well. Though I do wonder... Um, you know, some of these, the big cap tech stocks in particular are sort of the, the equity equivalent of safety and liquidity, because when you look at the breadth of the stock market, it, a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of interest in buying has been narrowed down into certain slices of it that it seemed more like uh, safety and liquidity. Yes, I know the AI bubble and everybody's hot on what's the next biggest thing, but, you know, the broader market might struggle where some of the big cap tech stocks might not be as bad off for those, those particular reasons. And maybe that's one reason why you've seen, uh, you know, the big cap tech stocks perform as well as they have, despite the fact that economic uncertainty, to put it very modestly, mm. has really risen here. Yeah. Do you think one of the things that's been happening is we've had these years where stocks and bonds are moving together. Do you think that sort of more traditional relationship emerges or could we see another one of these periods where we have either, you know, have them both in pain? It sounds like it, you see bonds still performing the way they always have. And if that's the case, maybe that they offset each other. I don't know. Have you thought about that? Yeah, I think we're going back into the more traditional paradigm where as things go wrong, bonds do well, stocks mm. don't do well. And I think the uniting factor over the last couple of years, especially 2022, was the Fed. And how the Fed is perceived in stocks and how the short end of the yield curve plays off the long end of the yield curve. So the Fed was able to influence uh, rates higher at the short end, which obviously is going to have a limited impact on rates at the long end. So that was negative bonds. At the same time, perception in the stock market was that the Fed is no longer their friend. Uh, so that was that was stock price negative. And so you had this unusual correlation where rate hikes were bad for stocks and bonds at the same time. But if the economic scenario plays out the way the bond market has it right now, it should be bond market friendly and stock market unfriendly. That's yeah. assuming, of course, that's what happens. And that's balance of probabilities. They continue to be tilted decidedly in that direction. I love uh, we have a lot of questions of when and where do you see the peak on 30 yield? Uh, I'll ask you that one. But we have a lot of people who obviously think you have a crystal ball because they want exact timing yeah. of things, which is yeah. what I'll I give you the exact date and the time. Yeah, I think you just spent the last 25 minutes saying how it's almost impossible because things have it's been such a difficult environment and, and things are different enough that it's confusing. But what, what are how are you thinking about that? Have we seen the peak in bonds already now here? It's impossible. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's it's absolutely impossible to say because 
and it's you know it's understandable why people would want to want to uh, that answer that question because it's the it's the trillion dollar question when does everything start to fall into place when does everything make sense in one direction or the other when are we going to finally end up with enough clarity that we can say you know i'm going to buy bonds without being afraid jay powell's going to rip my face off or when <laughs> when am i going to buy stocks and not be afraid that we're going to be into a massive global recession uh, it's you know when you're facing this type this type of you know almost binary arrangement you know I want to buy stocks, but geez, I look at China, I think, oh my God, the world's going to fall apart. And I want to, you know, I want to buy bonds, but the Fed keeps talking about raising rates. And yes, they don't control interest rates, but there's that's downside risk. It's material downside risk. And so until we get that clarity, it's it's almost like one or the other. It doesn't matter. It's risk either way. Yeah, that's really well put. Uh, banking, are you concerned about, because as rates creep up and if there's a potential for them to stay here a little while in this ambiguous time, um, how are you thinking about the regional bank situation? They seem to be under pressure again. Um, Is there risk in the banking system here in the U.S.? I think we're beyond risk. (laughs) It's really, uh, and it's not really about rate hikes. It never really was. I think we're seeing just the leading at the start of the commercial real estate fallout. And there's it, it's it's one of those things, you know, crisis, they come in incrementally. You hear a little bit, you know, the stories about markets that become illiquid, which is really what you should be paying attention to. Um, not the, you know, illiquid commercial real estate loans, but the most liquid markets, CMBS and CLO markets, are starting to hear that bid-ass spreads are ginormous and that you can't even negotiate prices for from those big players that want to sell. That's an alarm bell because it means the most liquid parts of the commercial real estate markets, they're not so liquid. And that could create all the negative consequences that we're familiar with the banking crisis, where it forces revaluation to take place. Therefore, you have you have write downs, funding difficulties that lead to fire sales, which lead to losses, which lead to all the negative consequences. So, yeah, we need to be very concerned about the banking system, but it has nothing to do with rate hikes. It has everything to do with the economy because commercial real estate really is economically sensitive and it's already in a very bad place. And we all know the stories here. None of it is a surprise. There's no mystery. But if the economy continues to get worse and it does force some some institutions into sales, which is what really happened with Silicon Valley Bank and the others, that's when it be, that's when the banking crisis gets turned back up and we start paying attention again. And we'll see everybody shift to the recession side of the boat once more. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the the narrative from the Fed and from banking executives and some of the large cap banks was that, you know, this is contained in the regional banks. It doesn't sound like you think it is. It's always contained from the top, right? <laughs> the subprime was contained and True. everything. What did Janet Yellen it's say? Certain, we'll certain never didn't, have... didn't feel like that when we lived through it, though, did it? Yeah, no, but it's, you know, that's what they're always going to say. And for a, quite a long period of time, it will look like it is. I mean, look, Ben Bernanke said subprime was contained in March of 2007 when it wasn't. But it was another five months before we got another real confirmation that, oh, it wasn't contained. And then we went another five-month period where it looked like, okay, we went through the worst and everything is fine again. And then Bear Stearns suddenly fails. Well, it wasn't sudden. Nobody was paying attention. Everybody forgot about it. And then after Bear Stearns failed, we went through another five-month period where everybody said, everything's fine. It's contained. You know, you go through the transcripts of the FOMC in 2008. That's what they said. Bear Stearns was the absolute worst of it. It was never going to – we – we geniuses, we figured out how to how to uh, save ourselves from a huge banking crisis. And then, oh, crap. 
Then it was, you know, the, the GSEs and Lehman Brothers and everybody else. And as far as the Fed and the public was concerned, this was a huge surprise when if you paid attention to the market signals, you could see that coming a mile away. So yeah, the, it's always contained until it isn't. So that's why you have to pay attention to, again, going back to the question, why are yields hanging in where they're hanging in? Why is it that people are, you know, the markets are expecting that safety and liquidity might just be in high demand in the future? And there really is no shortage of, of potential culprits and suspects here, not just China and domestic or overseas, but commercial real estate, you know, that's, that's I think, is going to be a big issue here. All right. Well, I mean, that is, uh, I'm like pained when I hear you talking about that, because for those of us who went through it, it was true. Like you'd have this major shock and then it felt eerily quiet for a while and everybody thought we survived. And then when it went, it just was a domino that it was impossible to catch. So it's such a frightening prospect to think about it being anywhere in that region. Um, and, and wise to remind us all that we have to be really vigilant. Um, Jeff, you're gonna stay with us. We're gonna dig into the other suspect out there and that is China, because you've got some fantastic info on that. We're gonna say goodbye to our YouTube uh, community. Before you go though, an NFT reminder for you, those of you who are interested in that or playing around in that universe or might wanna learn more about it. Today's the final day to mint an NFT and join the RV Super Community. 9 p.m. tonight, the mint will close and all the remaining unminted NFTs will be burned. So what's the Real Vision Collective all about? This innovative NFT project is on a mission to bring all your favorite NFT communities together while giving you the knowledge you need to navigate Web3. And for season two, they've added a special bonus called the Everything Option that gives you the opportunity to capitalize on the market's nest big move. Super cool stuff going on there. And there are also some RV benefits and access to the platform and membership you get through that. So check it out some amazing stuff and join Elaine Lee's DGen happy hour on Friday if you want to have some real fun and learn more about it as well. It's great stuff. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. Ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.